You love technology, you love privacy, and you cherish freedom and the Constitution. This is our culture and way of life, and it's under attack from powers that be who want to know all that we do while we know little of what they do. Restore the Fourth is an organization seeking to restore that balance, and we need your help. And we especially need your help during this year's DuckDuckGo fundraising challenge. With your individual contributions, Restore the Fourth stands to win bonuses or have DuckDuckGo match your donations. Please head to RestoreTheFourth.com and click on the Donate button to help support our work. That's Restore the, the number four, T-H dot com. Thank you for your support. Your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon, your thoughts. Encryption is a munition, and in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it's your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots, episode number 10, recorded on March 30th, 2018. The Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast, dated January 7th, 2018. My name is Fong. And I'm EJ. Welcome to the Privacy Patriots podcast, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. So we're back and there's been a lot going on in our wake. It's almost overwhelming, if not depressing, how many different threats to privacy rights uh, come at us almost every day. But Here and there, there are a few little glimmers of hope and goodness. So. Yeah. We'll talk about some of those later. Yeah. So uh, this um, Amazon AWS leak, was that a glimmer of good hope or? Uh... Uh, no, not really. <laughs> um, so I think it was a while back we had discussed uh, that there were several terabytes of military documents up on an AWS bucket that were uh, sort of open for the browsing. And it turns out FedEx has... Uh, fallen to the same fate. They had about 10 years of customer documents uh, up on an AWS bucket okay. that was open to the well public. Okay. So, so AWS uh, uh, buckets are uh, are in, are the place to air your dirty laundry these days, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to hang your underwire out for everybody to see. Yep. Go to That's Amazon the website. That's the <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, what's up with a, with another notorious uh, privacy offender, Equifax? Uh, not much is uh, getting done uh, for the 150 million victims of that breach. 150 million plus, yeah. yeah. Uh, basically, half of America. <laughs> Uh, there's a whole bunch of noise. It doesn't seem like anything's really come of it. And uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, actually put out a statement saying that Equifax may actually make money off of this breach. And, of course, she's one of the few that would point this out and not sweep this under the yeah. rug. But... Um, and 
it's just sort of absurd that they could possibly finagle a way to make money out of this. But hey, this is the day and age we live in. Um, now, do, do you know how? Is it a matter of they're selling the poison and now they're selling the antidote? Is it? It's roughly like that. Partially that. Uh, also, partially that there are no real fines levied against them. Like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was a proposal to levy like some millions of dollars worth of fines against them, but with companies this big, a couple million dollars is like profit in a day or two. You know, mm-hmm. they don't really care. Yeah. So, but in this case, the antidote is they is their services. <laughs> yeah, specifically, they've gotten into these LifeLocks style uh, identity theft protection yeah. business, right? So. Yeah. We'll protect you from our screw up for a for a yearly fee of dot dot dot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, one of our favorite privacy tools, uh, Open Whisper Systems Signal Messenger. What's going on with them? Uh, so two bits of news. Uh, first is pretty cool. Uh, so Skype. And Sig- Signal uh, announced a partnership, so it looks like Signal is going to be bringing their encryption to Skype for Skype voice calls, which is pretty cool. Um, Skype, uh, the main reason I've used Skype in the past is that it really prioritizes voice over video, where a lot of other like tools like that prioritize them equally or video over voice, mm-hmm. which if you're just talking to a coworker, voice is more important and you can let the video sort of... Yeah. I have a lot of gripes degrade. with Skype, but the audio quality is not really one of them. I'll give them that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess uh, if they're, if they're going to be offering encryption, that solves another problem we'll be talking about later because... Uh, you, you you can't you can't hear somebody uh, say naughty words, yeah, <laughs> over an encrypted stream. Um, right. Also interesting because I I believe early on in their terms of service they had something ridiculous like anything that you transmitted over Skype became their intellectual property, something nuts like that. Uh, I'm not familiar with it, but it sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, other companies have done things like with that to sort of build up their yeah. text-to-speech engines. So Signal, you know, between Facebook and WhatsApp, uh, they seem to have, they're really branching out into licensing their in, end-to-end encryption technology yeah. to uh, a lot of different messaging services what what do you think about that do you, do you think any addition is good or do you think that uh they're getting in in bed with the devil when they do this or selling out or i mean it's it's a little bit of getting into the bed with the devil because Skype is a Microsoft product and Microsoft cooperates with the government and all sorts of um programs as we've seen before but at the same time, Skype is a tool that people use on a daily basis. So mm-hmm. getting encryption into Skype is a big win. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't been launched, but there's a partnership and they're working on it. So I think getting uh, signal encryption into more things is a win, sort of regardless of who um, who it's with, because the protocol's out there already. There are implementations and people are already attempting to break these implementations. So mm-hmm. 
it's what not you, like more exposure. What do you think uh, their motivation for adding encryption to Skype is? You think it's just the the free market uh, consumers are demanding it, so they are seeing that they'll lose users without having it, or I. Maybe I know Apple has definitely made a push for we're like we're privacy conscious and aware and we'll fight for your rights. So maybe other services are starting to see that as a valid marketing option, which would be nice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, it all goes back to Edward Snowden and his revelations because I don't think you would have this uh, desire for encryption at the consumer level to the point where companies are starting to respond if he hadn't uh, made everybody aware of what he did. Yeah. Um, But meanwhile, somebody's claiming that they're able to hack into Signal. Uh, I mean, I know Signal's open source. It's been thoroughly audited. The code has, um, and it's it's mostly passed with flying colors. What do you know about that? Uh, so what is it? It looks like Gray Heron, um, who's a, I guess, cybersecurity tool vendor who uh, works with various governments, claims to have some sort of attacker tool against Signal. But mm-hmm. of course, they're not demonstrating it publicly because then the people behind Signal could patch it. They yeah. also claim to have similar attacks against um, WhatsApp and Telegram and other other apps like that. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, it's, I mean, is there any indication of what its nature is? Like, is it a, a something that has to be implemented on an individual user? Do we know that uh, much? I don't honestly know. Because um, we've seen other cases where people have claimed, oh, we hacked this, we hacked that, and they're really operating a level above and, and have gotten into a user's device in some other way, either physically or otherwise, and, like... If you, you know, one of those things where, like, if you hack the Android keyboard, then you are going to be privy to, uh, you know, what what the user types, no matter the encryption of the app that they're typing to, because you're <laughs> you're a right. step away anyway. But sometimes, you know, like the, they'll for the notoriety, they'll take something like that and say, "Oh, we hacked Skype or we hacked Signal." Um, so. They claim to have a tool, uh, some malware, which can be distributed in a number of ways, which could, uh, I guess, once on a user's phone, intercept their signal chats or whatever, which it might just be like looking at their keyboard and sort mm-hmm. of figuring out what app is currently open, mm-hmm. which... Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I always ask about, like, you know, would you have to uh, own an individual user in some way for this to work? Because, um, uh, you know, hacking one user with some particular, you know, a notable level of effort to get the one user is a different story altogether than if you have something that that can just chew through uh, signal traffic at large or something like that. You know, I know a lot of people are going to have, every person is going to have a different um level of security that makes them comfortable for me it's about eliminating uh the mass surveillance it's about getting my stuff out of the vacuum (laughs) yeah dragnet um and if somebody you know 
I almost take the attitude if if somebody takes the effort to if they have a conscious reason they they're trying to target me and they take all of this you know spy versus spy effort to do it then at least they earned it <laughs> you know uh, yeah I just want to make them work for their money you know that's at yeah. the very least so from the lulls what files <laughs> Microsoft uh, has advised customers. That offensive language on Skype uh, in an Outlook.com or uh, email or a Office 365 Word document, they're considering that a potentially account-closing offense <laughs> under its updated terms of use. Just silly, really. Yeah. Um, I actually... Uh, funny enough, this morning I saw something on Reddit, uh, some guy being like, hey, for 25 cents you can insult me over Skype. And somebody was like, yeah, this is a trap given Microsoft's <laughs> new like updated terms of service. I don't quite think they go into effect yet, but, you know. I'm here for an argument. No, this <laughs> one's, this is abuse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you have anything else to add to that one? Uh, I've got about seven words. <laughs> that come to mind uh but i mean i, I don't know what uh, i don't know what the fuck they're thinking <laughs> it, it's mind-blowing yeah um so yeah a lot of a lot of stupidity out there what's up next uh so there was an independent audit of a lot of the intelligence agencies um whistleblower programs in the united states yeah and it got shut down early because it looked like all of the programs didn't protect the whistleblowers. Okay. And it just looked really bad. So yeah. the agency shut it down. Because, of course. You know, it's like uh, it's like anywhere, you know, working at a company even. Oh, there's an open door policy. Here, let me show you the, the open <laughs> door. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then another funny one I saw was... Uh, it came out recently, but back in December of last year, 2017, um, there was a cybersecurity conference in Taiwan, and the Taiwanese police gave out uh, USB sticks. I think they were like 8-gig sticks uh, as sort of like a, a door favor or whatever. Okay. Uh, turns out they were all infected with malware. Okay. <laughs> Funny you mention that. I went to uh, I went to a security conference last uh, last year. And there was a, a vendor at a booth giving out, uh, you know, their private label yeah. USB sticks. And I went to use it a couple of weeks later, and I'm like, wait a minute. I just took a USB <laughs> stick from somebody I don't know at a security conference. I'm about to put this into a com into my computer. <laughs> Lulz, what? <laughs> so maybe uh, USB sticks aren't the greatest thing. Uh, door prize no to give out not. it's almost like it's almost like a, a parody of, of social engineering if, if i ever thought of one you know <laughs> yeah it's like something off of um silicon valley the mm -hmm. tv show yeah uh, um oh also uh defcon has various uh, defcon's this big security conference in las vegas mm -hmm. held every year um 
So the various villages, they call them, which are dedicated yeah. to specific topics. So there's the voting village, which is all about like voting security, e-voting, yeah. voting machines. These are kind of little like workshop areas yeah. that are set up in different spots at the the conference. Um. So in past years, they had gotten uh, voting machines and they'd had people like attack them there in this hotel, this conference. Uh, this year, they're having a whole lot of difficulty getting their hands on voting machines. Um, I mean, presumably yeah. the various vendors are very scared of how quickly voting machines have fallen victim to those wily hackers in the past. Yeah. I really felt the whole electronic voting thing was r- rushed to market. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was really, you know, and you got to imagine the, the, the folks in our local state and, and, county governments, you know, I'm actually not sure at what level the decision-making was made, but you got to imagine the people in in the positions that uh, chose products from these vendors, you know, yeah. at whatever time, were probably not uh, all too uh, versed in, in matters of security. So now we're kind of playing cleanup with these things, and it sounds like the... The hackers at DEFCON are eager to do so, but um, it, I guess like Stingrays and other secretive devices, the, they don't want to let the cat out of the bag. So I, I guess we'll put out there, right? Like uh, if, if, if anybody, I, I wish we could offer a bounty of some sort <laughs> for a voting machine because... Uh-huh. We'd love to to have that one. Yeah, I I think I have cookie dough in my freezer. I will I will make <laughs> fresh cookies for anyone who brings us a voting machine. <laughs> so tempting, I know. Um, so so what what's this? DHS wants to expand its face scan when you go to, when you go to the exit the country. Yeah, are they currently? Uh, forcing you to do that, or is this something they're about to roll out? I think it's a pilot program currently, but they want to expand it to exit. Uh, I know the EU does it on entry, um, and it's like a fast entry version. There is, Mm -hmm. at some EU airports, an alternative where you can just go to an official and show them your passport. But uh, Mm -hmm. there was a study that's basically like, this is a complete waste of time. It doesn't actually provide any benefits. Mm -hmm. And yet they still want to roll it out. But then your face is going into some database, which is um, undoubtedly going to end up getting shared down the line and used for who knows what, having nothing to do with terrorism or airport security. And that that bad picture of you on your long day of travel is probably going to end up on an AWS bucket and going to be used on, uh, I don't know, it's going to show up somewhere sometimes. Yeah. So is is this, uh, this is only if you're, you're making trips that require a passport, right? Yeah, only if you exit the, the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've kind of had some of this on the brain because uh, I've been getting tempted by uh, pre- ads for pre-check. And there's a there's a global version of it, too. I forget the name of it. But this, yeah. is, um, this is slightly tangential. But I, uh, I honestly have not felt comfortable 
flying since the uh, they implemented the turn and cough and porno scans. Um, I know they've they've uh, rolled back. They they've modified the scanner technology a bit. Supposedly pre-check will not let you speed through. Yeah. Uh, but does it also do you know if does it keep you from getting grabbed? That's my main concern. I don't, I don't want anyone so, touching me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my understanding of it is you go and you sit down and you have an interview with like some FBI agent somewhere in some uh-huh. office. Um mm-hmm. and then you're cleared for some number of years, uh barring any sort of incidents. And you go into a special pre-check lane, which is just metal detector wand-type setup, I think. Okay. Um, and then if, you know, there is something, they'll pat you down, which I guess is reasonable to a degree if, like, a metal detector goes off in the airport. Like, mm-hmm. you know. Well... Uh, Patting down. Patting down. I don't define patting down. Yeah, like when I would go to a a nightclub, you know, when I when I was a kid, go go to a like concert venue. Maybe more of a wand, like (laughs) run the wand over you than a pat down. Okay, Um, that I could deal with. Actually, Uh, if it was you know like uh, uh, the basis and Spinal Tap, (laughs) (laughs) which reminds me of another thing. What would happen if you wore like a, a a jockstrap or a cup? Uh, you know, I have no idea, but <laughs> I have I have some insider information on how these porno scanners work, uh, mainly from my going through them. So the last time I went through them, I was wearing combat boots, which my friend had given me because they were too big for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was wearing jeans. Uh, I also have some chimp implants and some magnet implants mm. uh i walked through metal detectors in these mm. these uh airport full body scanners with no issues with the chips or magnets we have but a my... cyborg on the show <laughs> yes we are amongst you <laughs> um but my gene had like folded over onto itself and that was just thick enough to show up as a solid object on uh, the scanner and that's what triggered it yeah which was sort of a hassle so i guess moral of the story is don't wear jeans to the airport um some consideration with tsa pre-check mm. which so continuing with news uh some miscellany uh ice immigration and custom customs enforcement wants to become an intelligence agency under the trump administration uh i have gotten wind of this but um you know, it's a great example of how uh, the government isn't this monolithic entity. But, but what, do, what do you think the ramifications could be? Uh, like, we don't have enough intelligence agencies, or clearly not. Everybody yeah. should be an intelligence agency. No, no, God, no. Well, if they get all no. the toys that they're asking for, they will basically be if they're scanning everybody's yeah. faces, if they're getting their license plate trackers. There are, you know, cameras on everybody's property to watch the border, which we'll get to later. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's not every agency that deals with uh, sort of management of public resources needs to be an intelligence agency. I don't think you see any reason for the Park Service to be an intelligence agency, mm-hmm. but... 
hey, if they're able to see something and yeah. say something, <laughs> but not necessarily if they're able to be intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> My read of it is ICE has seen the political zeitgeist and given the administration's feeling on immigration issues, uh, they think this is their chance to get all of the toys and funding they want. Mm -hmm. So if you remember a few years ago, there was a, um, a bit of a controversy with Facebook. Uh, not that there haven't been plenty more since Wh then. Which one was this? <laughs> but, uh, they were they they were kind of suspending people's accounts if they were finding they were using aliases or not you know not using their full names uh, and yeah um so uh, I guess in Germany they decided that uh, Facebook can't force them to do that uh, which is a little ironic but mm -hmm. uh, Germany has some rules about what you can name children and stuff so. oh really uh, yeah oh. Actually, a fair number of countries do, but yeah. Yeah. But I have a... Actually, I have a couple friends who are German citizens, but one of them, uh, their Facebook name is Anna Nemenis. Okay. So it's like anonymous, but sort of spread out. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so yeah. that's her, her Facebook name, or she legally changed her name? No, that's, that's their Facebook name. Oh. Yeah. Uh, which... Runs afoul of Facebook's U.S. rules on your real name, but not EU rules or German rules, I guess. Yeah, and I've seen some people have gotten notices saying like you're suspended and you have to send a picture of your license. Yeah. Yeah. It's the last people I want to have a picture of my license. Yeah. So what's up next here? There was some news about. Uh, Google's new photo tool tagging pictures of gorillas uh, in racially insensitive ways oh. or people with darker to skin tones as gorillas, uh -huh. um, which uh, I don't know if anybody uh, in our viewing audience uh, ever watched Better, um, what is it? Better Off Ted, mm -mm. but they... Uh, oh, they had an episode uh, that sort of dealt with, it wasn't computer vision, but it was like computer sensors being racially insensitive and not being able to acknowledge darker skin tones because mm. the engineers who built them were all white and so they're calibrated against the light reflection off white skin. Yeah. File under the larger <laughs> umbrella of, you know, our algorithms just end up magnifying uh, or, or emulating the worst <laughs> attributes yeah. of us yeah and it's why diversity is actually important because if you design a product with three people it's going to reflect what those three people know and need from that product so this was an interesting case um uh pun intended <laughs> um a uh, uh, an engineer at PayPal named Harper uh, Harper Reed ordered a uh. suitcase on Amazon, um, and the, the brand was Rimawa. Is that how it's pronounced? I, I mean, I think so. It's far yeah. above my it, pay grade. It was some <laughs> ostensibly high end luggage brand that usually costs seven several hundred dollars, right? And, yeah. Uh, he never received his order. And he was quickly refunded his 
payment of $700 and then just went to this, another store and, and bought it. Uh, but Amazon didn't offer an explanation as to what happened, which is, which isn't uncommon in these instances, but, uh, turns out he explained on, on Twitter, uh, quote, here is a fun thing. A while back, I ordered a Rima bag from Amazon. It never arrived. Amazon gave me my money back. Time passes. I recently went to my global entry I recently went to my global entry renewal interview. That's what I was trying to think yeah. of before. That's like the global version of the TSA pre-check, right? So he recently went to a global entry renewal interview. He says, they denied me because Amazon Marketplace apparently shipped me a counterfeit suitcase. This is pretty annoying. I'd say it's more than annoying. Yeah. Uh, this The listing was full price and seemed like all other Amazon items, but I guess it wa wasn't. But we can infer from this tweet that the fact that he unwittingly purchased a counterfeit item right, that which... got detected, I'm assuming somehow by uh, customs right. or uh, enforcement. Yeah, it was probably caught in customs, which yeah. is why I never showed yeah. up. Yeah. So now this is a blemish on on his record, which he doesn't even have privy to the the information right. that's being kept on him. Like he can only infer. Um, but you know, I, I if I could get you know have him in front of me, I'd like to ask you know what what happened at that global entry uh, renewal interview because obviously he he. That's he's implying. That's when he learned of it. So I'm assuming yeah. they told him. I'm now starting to wonder how many of the computer cords I've ordered off of Amazon might be counterfeit, or you know, what else might be counterfeit. Mm -hmm. Which normally wouldn't be an issue, but hey, turns out apparently somebody's data mining all that information. Hmm. So on to the NSA being dicks file. Always and forever, it seems like. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, they surreptitiously deleted the word honesty uh, from their list of core values on their website. Right. Uh, which I guess that we can appreciate as a needed update that was a long time coming to at least reflect the way they have been operating. Yeah, I, I appreciate the lessening of the lie. Mm -hmm. However... Ironically, they're being more honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, it, I would rather that they kept it and they strived for it rather than delete it and, in doing so, emulate it. But well, We all can dream. Yeah. Uh, in more NSA-related news, it turns out that they deleted a whole bunch of data that they promised that they would keep. Mm. Um, this was data that they had said that they would keep because it was relevant to some ongoing lawsuit or pending lawsuits. Um, they apparently never took the steps necessary, and I'm doing air quotes here, uh, to preserve it. You know, I... I don't imagine this is an institution that normally just deletes data willy-nilly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like they have some 
cron job to empty their database every like third Thursday. <laughs> and uh, what was the nature of the lawsuit? I, I, uh, I believe it was some kind of, um, uh, you know, in in the general spirit of oversight, someone, someone yeah. Um, what was it? It was in U.S. District uh, Court. There were a couple of um, uh, a couple of pending lawsuits about programs under uh, the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. However, uh, uh, yeah, they say that they basically there were some backup tape that had failed and it erased data from 2009, 2011, and 2016. Uh, And it says, The NSA sincerely regrets its failure to preserve, or to prevent the deletion of this data. uh, Okay. But this was uh, data that ostensibly would have been requested in discovery? Yeah. Of the lawsuits? Or, or, um, been subpoenaed by somebody else yeah yeah um i imagine this relates to the bush era phone taps um they build a giant warehouse in the desert to hold all the data but apparently they don't have good backups (laughs) (laughs) something there doesn't quite click which by the way tomorrow is uh national backup day yeah, because don't find yourself a fool uh, the next day. Yeah, having lost all your data. I think it, this was de- devised by Western Digital or one of these companies. It's uh, it's a corporate-packed holiday. I can I can get behind. Yeah, uh, even if it does mean I need to buy a couple more hard drives. Mm. <laughs> um. Oh, so uh, the NSA oral. Well, now he's the White House uh, cybersecurity coordinator, but he used to run the National Security Agency's Office of Tailored Access Operation. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you remember, these are the guys who would intercept packages, open the package, modify the firmware, hardware on a router, repack it, and, like, send it on its way. And it would just look like the package got lost for a day at some sorting facility. The people that would do exactly what they were... Uh, at the time, warning the Ch- that the Chinese were doing to us. Yeah. Um, so Rob Joyce uh, put out a statement saying, uh, in relation to whether or not the NSA knew about Meltdown or Spectre, the NSA did not know about the flaw, uh, has not exploited it, and certainly the U.S. government would never put a mer- major com- company like Intel in a position of risk like this to try to hold open a vulnerability. Hmm. Uh, can we just call bullshit? Do they... Because we know they this only like bullshit? Uh, keeping vulnerabilities open when it's open source software? Or small companies, right? right yeah. Right. <laughs> like, uh, we know based on their tools that have been leaked that use vulnerabilities and zero days that they very much like keeping these open. And this man having run the branch of the NSA he ran, would very much know that. Mm. In fact, I'm sure he was in meetings where they debated uh, the necessity for buying more zero days. I I think we can fairly 
reasonably assume that. Um, so I'm seeing the the, the intercept uh, a favorite in in my uh, news bin uh, has a piece called "Finding Your Voice" about the NSA's uh, voice recognition program and its history. My yes. understanding is that they've gotten remarkably good with that. Uh, better than Alexa and Google Voice. It seem, or not Google Voice, uh, whatever Google's Alexa Siri option is. Yeah. It's what it, Google Now, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I read that too. It, um, I mean, I guess when you're trying to phone tap the entire world, it behooves you to have a good voice recognition software. Mm. I think I had caught wind that they gone even farther in the other direction where they're able to take voice prints and then um, realistically recreate your voice. It's uh, terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you don't really know if uh, it's really Fong and EJ here. And this yeah. could just be a... Uh, this whole podcast could be a ruse <laughs> run, <laughs> run by the men in black. If it's a ruse, we're not being paid enough. (laughs) (laughs) So, from the surveillance states around the world file, uh, you know, perhaps coming to a country near you, you know, a lot of the the bad deeds that we see elsewhere are are kind of, unfortunately, end up being a preview of what's to come. Yeah. Um, So... Across the pond, uh, a British court ruled that their quote-unquote snoopers charter lacks adequate safeguards. Uh, Yeah, so this is a spot of good news, actually. Um, Mm. The uh, British government had a, uh, a, I guess, a law or collection of laws or something that was referred to as the snooper charter, which allowed them to snoop on communications and share that information but it looks like this court is now saying that that law did not provide adequate safeguards to protect British citizens. But, you know, in saying it doesn't provide adequate safeguards to protect British citizens, it also doesn't provide adequate safeguards to protect anybody else. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a step in the right direction, and I would like to see that more places because I don't think we will, you know, checks and balances is is the first step. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, draw some attention, realize there's an issue, get people to admit that, and we can work from there. So, but what's this now? Amazon partnered with the Bobbies? Uh, yeah, I didn't fully read this, but I saw it, and given the topic at hand, we sort of need to talk about it. But it looks like Amazon and Scotland Yard, or the British police, have a partnership, um, which reasonably has alarmed many uh, privacy people over across the pond. Um, And it looks like this partnership covers basically Alexa data and Mm -hmm. the voice information recorded there that, uh, yeah. So uh, this is a concern definitely with the growing use and commonality of Alexa and other sort of Alexa-enabled devices or things like that. I mean... Yeah, wasn't didn't this involve uh, an app for Alexa that would allow users to report crimes in an automated yeah. fashion? 
not surprising right. from a country where uh, uh, security cameras are augmented with uh, PA systems, and you could find a uh, a police officer admonishing you for littering or jaywalking from miles away as they watch on a TV screen. That's creepy on uh, several levels. But, yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I wonder what privacy questions come up here about. Um, I I guess if you're having Amazon as an intermediary, you're yeah, like uh, you're basically outsourcing the police. Yeah, which, and and you're passing them data directly from a consumer who might not view it as such. You know, uh, your average uh, citizen might view using this Alexa app more as placing a phone call. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas this is more like placing a phone call on a wiretapped line. Um, and who knows what other data Amazon is passing along because that's, you know, not really there Mm -hmm. at the same time. And I hate to have like a counter side to this. I do like sort of the, uh, you know, decentralization, more community focused, like, you can reach out to the police in more convenient ways that are easier to you. Yeah, I mean, um, we've finally seen 911 systems that allow texting. and Right, which, you know, there are all sorts of situations where you wouldn't be able to call the cops, but you might be able to send an SMS mm-hmm. uh, where you'd want the cops to actually show up. Mm-hmm. Um, on to China. Yeah, China has a knack for uh, uh, innovating in the encroachment of privacy. Because uh, I'd say if there's there's one place, one one major world power where uh, citizens are uh, not don't expect to have any privacy, it would be China. They they really steal the show with the uh, surveillance state. Um, yeah. So. so I mean. Since our last podcast, uh, President uh, uh, Xi Xi, Xi Jinping uh, just decided that uh, he's not going to uh, be subject to a term limit anymore and will just be the president forever, uh, likely making our uh, our president uh, green with envy. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean... Um, but in response to this, uh, the Chinese authorities um, uh, took measures to curtail any sort of voicing of dissent with this. So they banned the letter N. Uh, just just the letter N was banned for, I think it was like 48 hours, 24 hours, something like that, uh, over the two days preceding this announcement. Um does the N have some sort of implication in this? So, apparently, up on? it was being used as a shorthand in N um, greater than two. It okay. was like a message where N is like, you know, the number of terms is now greater than two. Oh. They also banned some other things, like the word immortality or the phrase ascending the throne. Okay. So, you know... Uh, these are phrases getting used by t- people critiquing yeah, and the president. This is a level of Orwellian newspeak that Orwell could not have envisioned. The, you know, why change the language when you can just edit it on the fly? Mm-hmm. 
you know, and then and then two three days later, you just let it go back because that moment has passed. In some other continuing the China related uh, state surveillance news, uh, Apple in China has partnered with a um, government run company in China these sort of quasi governmental companies aren't uncommon because it's still a uh, quote unquote communist state so the government owns a lot of various companies but this particular one and I'm about to butcher this name uh, Gizhou uh, on the cloud big data abbreviated GCBD uh, it's partially owned by the Gizhou provincial government in southern China, and again, I apologize, I butchered that. Uh, I can, uh, yeah. Uh, but Apple partnered with them to host portions of iCloud, um, and also hold on to all of the uh, iCloud keys for all of mainland China's uh, iCloud users. So they're. They're straight up doing a backdoor. I don't even know if it's a backdoor so as much as, like, a front door. Yeah. There's nothing covert about this. Yeah. Uh, Well, wasn't Apple pretty much pressured, or or if not mandated, that they had to, A, start storing Chinese users' data within servers that were in mainland China, and they were required to turn over these keys, were they not? Yes, uh, that is my understanding. Um, and, I mean, in so far as the U.S. government has issues with Russian software and Chinese servers, it makes sense that the Chinese government has issues with American servers and mm-hmm. American software and wants their thing. They're just far more brazen and willing about how public they are and getting what they want or making requests for what yeah. they want. And that desire is, it, it's all relative to the values of that government and culture. Uh, you know, in China, individual privacy is not, I, I, I would go farther and say it, it, it's not uh, valued or not respected. It's its disallowed, in, a, in effect. Um, yeah, there's definitely a different, I don't want to say, cultural but a uh sort of social pressure and social value on that yeah definitely that uh has you know been created for many years by many different governments but uh, speaking of pressures is you know a move like this apple kowtowing to this kind of worries me in that as china becomes a greater world power and has more and more influence on the world stage economically or otherwise i wonder if we're not going to start seeing you know and and as america frankly becomes less of a world power um i wonder if we're really going to start seeing their values start to trickle out through the free you know through the free market, you know, through the invisible hand. And, you know, it worries me if some of these precedents aren't going to start spreading elsewhere. I don't know what that would look like, but I've talked about this before, where, you know, perhaps then um, the Chinese government would uh, refuse to do business 
in some other way where uh, with American companies or other foreign companies such that uh, it just caused um, companies or other types of standards makers or even, you know, in some weird future, our, our government to kind of fall in line with them because they become the lowest common denominator of, you know, what you have to do to do business. You know, like, what will we, are we willing to sacrifice to uh, be able to have the business of the Chinese market in, you know, in whatever context that means. But, you know, it, it worries me what we, uh, the price that we may eventually pay. Yeah, I agree. And uh, this is one of the issues that was brought up in part by the Snowden revelations with the NSA messing with uh, cryptography standards was that, you know, if these various organizations that put out these standards kowtow, as you said, to the American government, what's to stop them from kowtowing to the Chinese government or the Russian government or the Syrian government or, you know, any other government who could have in that government's mm -hmm. vision, you know, of their own interest, a interest in having some sort of backdoor there. You know, but, I mean, I, isn't this, isn't Apple's move almost hypocritical oh. in a way because... They refuse to bend to the requests of our government, you know, in the form of the FBI, and they flat out said we won't, uh, uh, you know, we, we won't weaken our product just to give you access. But in China, okay, we want to we want to do business in China, so whatever you need us to do. Yes, I would agree. It's it's very hypocritical. Yeah. Uh, and it's also interesting in that you start to see the divergence of product lines from a monolithic company like Apple, where now they essentially have a Chinese product line, an American product line, whereas mm -hmm. before they had a product line. Yeah. You know, so uh, how does this affect other decisions that they might make? Uh, you know, I don't. Personally, I don't really care because I don't own any Apple devices. I don't use Apple. I frankly don't really like Apple, but yeah. it, that's not really relevant. Um, yeah. Well, we, we're recording this show on a MacBook, yeah, but yeah. I don't the, store it in the iCloud, that's for sure. And my girlfriend has an iPhone and two MacBooks, mm -hmm. and I used to work for a company that used to own Apples. But uh, it's not really relevant. I sort of lost myself in my train of thought there. Um, mm -hmm. But you have divergent product lines, which is interesting in, you know, how are they going to juggle these? And from a software standpoint, having two versions of the same thing is sort of tricky. You know, it's, it just requires more work. So do they have one version where the Chinese features are just disabled in America? Mm -hmm. or, I don't know. I, you know, it's... Almost, oh, I have no idea, but like... Or like... To me, this would be like McDonald's, like offering a dog burger in China. <laughs> like, okay, well, that's what goes over, goes on, you know. And, you know, I'm opening myself up to plenty with my vegetarian friend across the <laughs> table well, here. But 
So maybe it's not the best analogy to pose to you. Uh, no, no. I, I think uh, so. Eating horse is uh, sort of frowned upon in English-speaking countries, but in non-English-speaking countries, there isn't that prohibition. So mm. it would be like if Italy or France in McDonald's they served a horse burger. Like there's a huge uh, storm in England because there's horse meat in some ground beef in some uh, grocery store chain or something. I think a while back. Uh, you can tell I'm really up on my meat news, uh, but it, it's similar to that. Like, mm-hmm. so I see I see what you're saying, and I I agree. It's in a global economy when you have governments with I don't want to say diametrically, but sort of radically different views of the rights of their citizenry, or radically different expressed views of the rights of their citizenry. <laughs> um, that puts companies that want to do business in all these different countries in interesting places, which often does not put the consumer first or, you know, it puts their bottom line first. And as you see, as you've stated, and as you've said before, as you see the rise and the continuing rise of China, the desire of companies to do business in China and to go along with the Chinese line will only increase. So lastly, in the Middle East, uh, governments and ISPs over there are using network gear to inject malware into citizens' downloads. I guess this is, uh, I guess this would be manifested by deep packet state. Uh, yeah, I, I'm getting. I always get this dyslexic on that. Is it deep? Deep state packet injection or deep, deep packet? Uh, shit. No, I just, am too. Uh, deep packet searching or uh, yeah, um, and then basically doing some man in the middle attacks with that. Um, there's yeah. a so all the more reason that we have to promote HTTPS across yeah. the web. Yeah, amongst many other standards. Um, but this group, uh, just to give them a shout out, Citizens Lab did a. Uh, a little survey, and they found that in Turkey, Egypt, and Syria, the government was using uh, the ISPs to inject um, spyware into otherwise legitimate downloads of mm-hmm. antivirus and Windows and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now, am I right that this would only be possible on an HTTP-only site? Uh if you had the cooperation of the ISP, they could probably... Like, if you had the full cooperation of the ISP, you could probably do a man-in-the-middle attack at the ISP level. Would they have to set up a, a faux CA? Would it have to go yeah, that far back? Probably. Uh, but I mean, they, did they have that power, which is... Just the same as if you do that on a Lenovo computer on localhost, you yeah. could do it on the ISP. Yeah. Yeah. It's, is one of the issues with key exchanges and stuff, but yeah, I think uh, I don't I don't know the technical in and outs of it. Um, I've never tried to do a man on the middle uh, attack at you know a nation level. Uh, I've mostly only done done it on virtual machines for security research purposes, mm. or I've only done it in virtual machines for security research purposes. <laughs> Well, have you done any city-wide surveillance? 
Uh, you will, and the company <laughs> that'll bring it to you. Yeah, is um, uh, what is it? Fujis Fujitsu. Fujitsu. Uh, yeah, what is this? They announced this new product, uh, the Fujitsu Technical Computing Solution Green Gates Citywide Surveillance. Uh, it's basically integrated camera, audio, IoT gear instead of being for your home it's for your local municipal government to monitor their city uh and i know somebody who knows something or other about uh some of the products motorola is developing and really this is open and they talk about it at trade shows but they basically have a solution like this and i'm sure there are other companies that have solutions like this to let cities make use of, you know, their surveillance cameras in new and interesting ways. So, speaking of citywide surveillance in new and interesting ways, uh, we got to hear about what's been going on in Chicago. Uh, mm. This Apparently, uh, there's uh, been some surveillance imposed on food trucks uh, in the city of Chicago. And we actually got to talk to uh, one of the attorneys that is uh, help, helping defend the food truck proprietors in Chicago against uh, what you'll hear is a uh, an absurd <laughs> imposition on their, their Fourth Amendment rights, among others. So we're graced to be joined with Robert Frommer from, uh, he's a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, um, and, and more specifically, he's the executive director of their National Street Vending Initiative. And I guess we'll find out the implication of what, what that entails or what that means, because, uh, you know, I'm purposely not giving a very detailed intro on this story because it's so, I, I guess, fantastical in my mind that I would just want to hear someone tell it to me from the beginning. But I'll just lead off by saying that there's some encroachment being made on the rights of some uh, some food vendors in the Chicago area. Is that correct? Absolutely. And thank you for having me on. That's right. Oh, in Chicago, definitely. yeah, they're forcing every, all the food trucks to carry GPS devices that track their every movement. Okay. Because well, uh, we need to know where our burritos are at. Is this something in that's going to be uh, put into – is this going to be integrated into Grubhub or some app to make it <laughs> convenient to – find where your tacos can be found or what's it about <laughs> no of course if uh, lots of trucks use social media things like twitter and, and other ways to let their clientele know where they are and of course grubhub would be perfectly voluntary this one isn't back in 2012 the city of chicago amended its food truck laws and as part of that, it became only the second city in the nation to require that food trucks be equipped with GPS units. 
these are units the, the trucks have to pay for. They have to turn on and off constantly. And all that information is being sent to us, a, a, a database that the government can reach into anytime it wants to find out where the truck is or where the truck has been. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what is the worry about food trucks? Well, the Why do we need to know where they are yeah. at all times? Well, the worry in Chicago about food trucks and the reason they want to monitor wherever they go doesn't have anything to do with health or safety. It has to do with competition. And that same 2012 amendments, the city of Chicago uh, put in a rule that said food trucks could not be within 200 feet of any restaurant throughout the entire city. And so they included the GPS requirement so they can keep tabs on the trucks to make sure none of them are engaging in any unauthorized competition. <laughs> this almost reminds me, this, this is almost like Vonnegut-esque, you know, uh, some Harrison Bergeron type thing where we have to, uh, we have to put some shackles or weights around someone's neck to equalize them against people who are, you know, Are the restaurants in Chicago that bad? No. I've been, as you might guess, I've been to Chicago many times as part of this case. The restaurants in Chicago are great. There's no reason they need that kind of protectionism. But it's funny when you said, like, are they that bad? It's interesting. The city of Chicago has stood up in court repeatedly and said the reason that they have these laws, the 200-foot rule and the GPS requirement, are precisely to balance the playing field, to make competition, to basically square the field of competition. In other words, food trucks are doing too good of a job giving people what they want. So we do need to put shackles on them in the form of these rules in order to be fair to restaurants. Of course, who's being left out in all that are consumers who get fewer options. Now, let me ask you, was the 20, is it a 20-foot rule? Is that what you said? 20 yards? 200? No, it's it's 200 feet from any place that prepares and sells food to the public. Okay. Well, how about what? Yeah, I heard that. Whoa, yeah. (laughs) It it has the effect in places like downtown of making it practically impossible to vend there. Yeah, Yeah. you could have just like a couple strategically placed restaurants and block off entire neighborhoods from any food truck. Well, what if. Why don't they just make. Exactly right. Why don't they just make the uh, the food truck drivers wear shock collars, (laughs) GPS activated shock collars, and if they go. 200 feet within a restaurant, then they get zapped. Well, given how GPS gets all wonky when you have tall buildings, I'd be scared if I were a food trucker with one of those things on and the loop. But obviously, I agree I'm just... with you. That is the effect of their policy: is to treat. And my clients have said this: it makes them feel like criminals. It makes them feel like they've done something wrong. And amazingly, despite all of this. Despite that, you in order to in order to engage in this business, you have to equip this GPS. You have to have it monitored. You have to pay for it. The courts have said that that is not even a search for Fourth Amendment purposes. Yeah, which is just the shocking part. Yeah, and which is, poses an incredible threat not just to the food trucks, but to anyone who needs the government's permission to do something. Does this mean the government can require everyone who needs the government's permission? to be equipped with tracking devices 
under the court's reasoning, yes. So I want to know, did the 200-foot rule exist in a conventional form prior to this, and they're just augmenting it with GPS, or is this a new rule altogether? No, that is a very good question, and that is exactly right. The rule actually was originally struck down in the 80s. A version of the rule was struck down in the 80s. And in 1991, the city of Chicago, after basically creating an exemption to get rid of the original plaintiffs, repassed the 200-foot rule, and it's been there ever since. They added the GPS in 2012 because they were worried that the new growth of the food truck scene that we saw at the beginning of this decade was going to pose a threat to the restaurateurs. And so they needed to adapt and use technology to shut that threat down. Was there any sort of event or crime where a food truck was involved that sort of precipitated this, or was this just sheer protectionism and anti-consumerism? I have... Uh, scoured the record. Obviously, the city would have ever po- would have pointed out any incident. Uh, nothing. I have never seen anything uh, like about this. Anything to justify it. And what's interesting is that the city says that the real purpose. We all know the real purpose here is to, for protectionism. But in court, the city says that it's to so they can inspect the food trucks and make sure the food is you know not getting anyone sick, which would be fine, except for the fact the city in the six years since this uh, requirement went in place, has never actually used it to do a health inspection of a truck. Mm -hmm. In other words, the only reason it exists, the only reason they've ever used it, is to try to keep, uh, to suppress competition. So even if you indulge this 200-foot rule, do you really, is it really not enough then for... Uh, the proprietors of brick-and-mortar restaurants to make a complaint, you know, call the police when someone's too close by or what have you. You really need, you know, it's almost, uh, there's two issues. There's the issues of the the ordinance itself, and then the scope of the enforcement is just absurd. I mean, like, we're all used to ridiculous or or, kind of out there, uh, zoning rules or regulations in, in America, but to basically, like, you know, to shackle electronic devices on entrepreneurs to enforce that is just out of, out of control. What is, what are they thinking? It, well, they're thinking just that control, uh, control and authority over the trucks. And uh, what's shocking is that, as I mentioned before, the courts have said this isn't even a search for constitutional purposes. Their reasoning has been, well, the trucks need to get a license in order to operate. So, of course, the city can put conditions on that license. That's just like, and, uh, you know, that, that, that doesn't raise any Fourth Amendment scrutiny. That isn't a search. And, of course, you can see how incredibly dangerous that is. If you if that's an opinion, then any let's say truck driver, any uh, delivery person, any anyone, uh, maybe anyone who works for Uber or Lyft, anyone could be forced to get one of these devices, and 
what we see here is this is a potential massive invasion of privacy, which is why we're try we stepped in and brought this lawsuit to try and nip it in the bud to keep other cities from engaging in this kind of sort of Orwellian surveillance. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, could you tell us more about your role, how you got involved, and maybe just briefly, uh, if you want to roll into that, a, a brief introduction uh, about the Institute for Justice and what you guys do? Absolutely. Well, the Institute for Justice is a public interest law firm. We're a nonprofit public interest law firm. We've been around for about 25 years. And what we do is we defend people's constitutional rights in important areas so they can live their lives. Areas like free speech, economic liberty, the right to earn honest living, and the right to property and to be secure in that. And we bring uh, lawsuits to defend people's constitutional rights. When we heard about what was happening in Chicago, we worked closely with the trucks to try to keep these anti-competitive and, frankly, uh, uh, frightening surveillance rules out of their law books. And when we were not able to do that, we said we were going to step up and continue to help fight this, and we, that's why we uh, paired up with some food trucks and brought a lawsuit in uh, November of 2012. This has been going on for quite a while now, then. This is... Yes, it has. This, is, this case has been now, uh, yeah, five and a half years. It's, it's slow going. Um, uh, there was a, a number of delays in the trial court, and we didn't actually get a ruling until the end of 2016. But we're continuing to press forward uh, because this is a, just a critical issue that needs to be resolved, again, not just for the trucks, but for everybody who has to deal with the government. Does the fact that you need the government's permission to do something mean the government can attach any strings it wants, even if those strings come in the form of an electronic tether that follows you everywhere you go? And, you know, this is another case, something that in, has infuriated me is uh, leaning on this idea that uh, the need for a license and registration for a vehicle is using it's constantly used as an end run around people's rights and an excuse to impose any level of oppression i mean we see regular people you know most people probably aren't aware but they suffer onto endless tracking by license plate readers and you know in my mind uh we when we decided as a people to require license plates to be put on people's cars. We didn't imagine that they were going to be able to generate, you know, here in New York, we have our local law enforcement has five years worth of data in a database everywhere that your vehicle has ever been encountered or observed. And often uh, by freestanding license plate readers uh you know we're, we're looking at just a subset of motor vehicles here but here's a case where we're going even t to a farther level than that and i, I exactly think, i think yeah. we 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 have to find uh some sense of sanity where you you should be able to keep some modicum of your privacy and uh and your rights that you otherwise enjoy when you're walking around on two feet when you're in a vehicle 
I absolutely agree. I think this GPS unit uh, issue is important and it's a growing one. Uh, the, the license plate reader thing is, that you mentioned is a huge issue that is just starting now to be seen in the courts and pushing forward. Uh, you're absolutely right that when we originally got license plates, you know, 80, 90 years ago, whenever they first started issuing them, no one could have imagined this technology, these license plate readers that can create a comprehensive web of where we've, uh, where we've gone and who we've seen. Uh, as Judge Ginsburg of the D.C. Circuit said, this mosaic that it paints can reveal incredibly intimate details about uh, your personal life. It's a real invasion of privacy, and I think it's something that the court, uh, courts, and especially the U.S. Supreme Court, will, pro- will have to tackle in the years to come because we're ultimately, we are at a digital crossroads. Uh, we've created technology that makes the kind of tracking and monitoring uh, possible that we never could have imagined before, and we need to decide whether our Fourth Amendment rules have to take that in account in order to secure the privacy that we've grown accustomed to as citizens uh, throughout our history. Now, Robert, I don't know what your personal political orientation may be, or even if there's an orientation to the Institute for Justice. And I'll let EJ speak for himself, but I'll tell you that I, for the most part, identify as a a liberal progressive. But when you see, you know, I, I see government regulation as, uh, in, in many cases, as a necessary to, uh, a, uh, to our society functioning properly. But there are times when uh, regulation is so obviously just protecting an incumbency and in just for the sake of of that's who already has the power and they want to preserve that power and this is blatantly one of those cases in my mind yeah uh and the institute for justice and we're, uh, we make no bones about it we're a libertarian organization we generally believe in less government uh but and i agree with you that this is an example of where you see incumbents trying to use public power for private gain. Unfortunately, I think uh, this is uh, uh, something that we see uh, throughout all of government. Uh, It's just a a fundamental feature of government power. When you have the power as the government to dish out benefits to certain people and demerits to other people, you know, there are going to be people lining up to try to use that, to try to leverage that for their own gain. I mean, we can go back to the time of the kings when people would come to court and beseech, you know, a favor or, you know, to uh, ask that they get be given a monopoly over some industry. It's a, it's a constant feature, and which is why we at the Institute for Justice uh, continue to work uh, to make sure that the constitutional protections that exist that say the government shouldn't be using its power just to benefit a private party. That's why we continue to fight uh, that uh, throughout all of our cases, and that's why we fought here in Chicago. I think I have a simple way of delineating this kind of stuff, is to say, would you say this this ordinance would, uh, represents the will of the people of Chicago? I, I think I can uh, 
point to what the Chicago Tribune said in an editorial right before this law passed was that this ordinance did not does not serve the interests of lunchgoers and the public. It exists and its rules exist solely to benefit incumbent restaurateurs who don't want the competition. Mm. So I think, you know, if the members of a democracy at large clamor for something for uh, that requires regulation, then I'm for it. But this does not seem to be the case at all. I, I, I would agree with you there, yes. Are there, uh, sort of going back to the root of this, are there other instances in Chicago um, where there are ordinances that require somebody to take additional steps to sort of prove that they are not violating some rule or some ordinance? Is this, or is this becoming like a new trend? Okay. This is, this is, yeah, this is the first uh, in Chicago that I've seen of this. Of course, we all have to fill out, you know, form, government forms and things like that. But it's the first time I can think of where there's been that kind of uh, 24-7 monitoring and like I mentioned at the beginning, this is a, Chicago was only the second United States city to put GPS tracking in place. The other one is Boston. And what we're concerned about is that, left unchecked, this could quickly spread throughout the nation, and we'd all end up with less, pri- less privacy and autonomy, which is why we have to step up and protect our rights. There's a, there's a food truck near where I work, and... Thankfully, I think that one would be safe, but I think the other several that I frequent would be in grave trouble if anything like this ever came near where uh, we are. It's a mm. scary, scary uh, like reality. Yeah, it's unfortunate, and it's heavy, and it's important to recognize the, the the cost of this, not just on our rights, which is obviously very important, but just as on a practical level. Uh, you know, your ability to get your lunch. You mentioned you have a bunch of food trucks there. You know, if what happens if they all disappear? Is your life better because of that? Uh, are the people who work and live in the Chicago Loop, you know, downtown, where 97 percent of the of of the side of the streets are uh, no but no food truck zones, are they better off because of this? Are you better off because you have fewer options? You have to pay higher prices. That's why, on a real, I mean, we fight for our rights, but we're also fighting on a practical level because a world where freedom can exist is ultimately a better world. A world where competition can exist means that you, the consumer, are better off, and that's what we're trying to protect. So, you know, it makes me wonder, uh, has there been any sort of grassroots backlash about this aside from the proprietors themselves uh, just you know their customers the average citizen of chicago because i mean when you start messing with people's lunch i mean <laughs> you're gonna get a yeah a, a rat you know an angry dog you know gnashing its teeth at you i i wish i could say yes and we've had some uh m- there have been various points where there's been some modest interest from the public but I think this goes, but by and large, uh, there hasn't been a huge public outcry. And I think this goes to an incredibly important point about just the basis of government power is that the restaurants are very relatively, compared to everyone in Chicago, a very concentrated industry who definitely think they are getting the benefits of this legislation. 
And the costs, you know, as I mentioned, in terms of maybe not being able to get a lunch that you would like, that you might not have even known you could have gotten in an, uh, if this rules didn't exist. You know, you don't really feel that. It's very diffuse. And that's why we see over and over again these industries, concentrated players being able to use government power to really advantage themselves at the cost of the, of the larger populace. And unfortunately, that's just a, a feature of the way uh, you know we live our lives. Mm. Most people are too busy to look at the to get into these fights, you know. But not everybody. After all, that's what I do, and <laughs> I'm happy to do it. Yes, and uh, I, I, for one, thank you for it. It's not something uh, I am skilled enough in to take upon myself. So, thank you. Oh, don't sell yourself short. I'm sure there's a constitutional litigator in you. <laughs> well, I'm sure there is. <laughs> well, uh, we appreciate you uh, keeping up the the good fight. It it sounds like uh, you know this is a classic uh, Abe Froman versus the snooty waiter type uh, type confrontation, <laughs> and I smell a rat. So, <laughs> thanks for joining us, Robert Fromer of the Institute for Justice, fighting for people's lunch everywhere. Well, thank you for having me so much. I really appreciate it. And if any of your listeners want to know more about the case or any of the work that we do at the Institute for Justice, they can check out our website at www.ij.org, and you can find out everything about the Chicago food truck case and all the stuff we do. So it sounds like the Sausage King of Chicago is going to have to get a, a bit snooty <laughs> over that. Uh, uh, I wouldn't stand for it if I had a, a food truck. Uh, another thing I won't stand for is uh, the FBI's continued war on encryption. Uh, yet again, <laughs> didn't they? Uh, aren't they insisting upon uh, a uh, reasonable backdoor to end-to-end yeah. -end encryption? Calling for unbreakable encryption, uh, or they're saying... Uh, unbreakable encryption is an urgent public safety issue and the solutions are not clear cut you know because one plus one does not equal two apparently um, but Senator uh, Ron Wyden of Oregon has rightly called them out and he uh, basically publicly challenged the FBI director Christopher Wray to uh, list all of the cryptographers he claims have uh, said that this is, like, a possibility that you could have reasonable backdoors. Mm -hmm. And uh, Senator Ron was like, uh, okay, who are they? Name names. Um, and then a group of cryptographers came out and was like, thank you, mm -hmm. you're right. Because uh, we, we would like to know who these cryptographers who claim that this is possible are, because mm -hmm. um, that's not how the laws of math and physics that run our universe work. Yeah. So. And when uh, they come knocking at the back door, they always just ask for just a tip. But... <laughs> you always get a little shafted. <laughs> oh, that was bad. Um, uh, you know, and and continuing this, they you know they call Apple jerks and like they they don't play nice with us because they won't give us encryption um which i mean that's like saying remington isn't playing nice because 
they won't figure out a way to allow police to remotely disable a gun that's in the hand of a bad guy. Yeah, which we don't live in that sci-fi world yet. <laughs> like, maybe give it 20, 30 years, or maybe less. Um, but, you know, uh, that one at least is, like, possible, but... Yeah, Maybe. but someone can always yeah. make a, a homebrew gun. Yeah, there's. I mean, if you look at what's happened in the Philippines, uh, yeah, they they've had strict gun control laws, and then these uh, alley alleyway uh, gunsmiths have popped up. So, <laughs> I mean, it's old, you know, just black market. Yeah, you can't ever really stamp it I out. Mean, encryption is out there in the open source just as well to meet you know to as part of that analogy that you know you and i are will continue having end-to-end encryption no matter what they do yes uh and it does an american reasonable backdoor would put american citizens at a disadvantage to other citizens of the world but they don't seem to care or understand that but uh so getting back to Apple a little bit, there were some uh, quote-unquote private texts between an FBI agent or administrator and an FBI attorney where they basically called Tim Cook a hypocrite mm-hmm. for, you know, Apple iPhones track all of your data and all of your movements, but he won't cough up, you know, the keys to help the FBI out, mm-hmm. which I don't know if that's the most hypocritical thing there, but... It's just this continuing sort of tit-for-tat war in sort of the media and public minds. Um, Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And then you have Bill Gates weighing in, uh, seemingly on the side of the FBI, saying that... Oh, here it is. Uh, Tech companies have to be careful that they're not trying to think their view is more important than the government's view or than... Or, or than the government being able to function in some key areas. And he says, there is no question of ability for Apple to unlock the iPhone. It's a question of willingness. From the man who said we only needed, we never needed more than 640 kilobytes of memory. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> I, it's interesting that, like, you know, of course the FBI is probably down the road going to hold up you know this tech visionary bill gates is siding with us Mm -hmm. like yeah but he's not a cryptographer he doesn't have that background you know just because he made billions and billions of dollars doesn't qualify in tech doesn't qualify him to pontificate upon all aspects of technology and you could argue that he made most of his millions on completely unencrypted products had no regard for security until much, much later. <laughs> Speaking of, patch your old window boxes, everyone. <laughs> so on a more local level, uh, we we know that uh, police surveillance technologies uh, being used by, you know, our municipal and, and, and county law enforcement uh, continues to grow. Um, so 
the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Muckrock, uh, which is a very good site I recommend, uh, revealed how much data law enforcement agencies have collected using automated license plate readers. You know, these things are uh, All a thorn in my side. I, you know, um, I actively uh, solicit anyone listening, you know, I'm looking for brainstorms of uh, ways to protect yourself uh, from these things. In, you know, perhaps in, in a manner of that would uh, not uh, raise a red flag, but perhaps I would be open to this in some form that involves conscientious objection. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't rule out like making myself somewhat of a martyr for this cause. Yeah, it would, uh, I think sort of in the vein of the efforts in California with license plates, uh, in that, you know, you're allowed to cover your car while it's at rest, but you're not allowed to cover just a portion of your car. I would like to see some challenges elsewhere because, yeah. But I'd, I'd love uh, to see some solution that could make my license plate readable to humans, but keep it unreadable <laughs> to o OCR. Oh, man. Uh, license plate captchas. Yeah. Basically. Basically, yeah. Uh, actually, somewhat uh, interestingly, I saw something like that um, today while driving. Uh, somebody had a shockingly old... New York license plate is one of the old uh, blue and white ones. Mm -hmm. Was it on a vintage vehicle? No. It looked like it was on a new vehicle, which oh. is interesting. But it also looks like they spilled some sort of acid or solvent on it on some part because uh, about half of it was still, you know, faded, worn as a license plate is to be. Um, but you could still see the blue and white coloring, and half of it just had the paint stripped away. Mm -hmm. So it looked like some sort of solvent spill or something, which. I don't know what the regulations are on legibility of your license plate, and I'm certainly not advocating people go dunk their license plate in acid, uh, <laughs> for one. That'll give off all sorts of terrible fumes that will not be good for you. Yeah. An idea. Something to think about. Uh, but uh, oh, also it's come out that... Um, Police have been using OnStar and SiriusXM to uh, eavesdrop on trucks and cars for 15 plus years. So, is pretty this much for geolocation information, or yeah, um, and also eavesdrop in terms of like if there's an accident or it. Well, not so much an accident, but if they think there's a crime or a perpetrator in that car being able to turn that on and then listen in um, to that conversation. Yeah. Which is an avenue of uh, sort of wiretapping that most people don't think about. Yeah. And I, I always would regard the cabin of my car as kind of a safe space to talk about things. Yeah. But you gotta be wary of what comes in your car, what you're installing in your car, how it could be used. Yeah. But, uh, uh, 
Meanwhile, I, we alluded to this before, uh, ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, is uh, starting up their own system to track license plates across the U.S. Tie it together into one database to track everybody, so find all of the uh, people they're interested in amongst us. Mm-hmm. So they're they're going to track us all so that they can find the criminals, quote unquote criminals, Ill- illegal immigrants. So, uh, which of course I would call that a dragnet. Yeah. Oh, definitely, assuredly so. And it it won't just be tracking. Illegal immigrants. It'll be tracking people they think are associated with them, mm-hmm. which gets tricky very quickly. First, I came for the immigrants. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I spoke up and said nothing because I was not an immigrant. So we definitely have to talk about this in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, the the police uh, obtained a warrant which allowed them to obtain data on any uh, Google device that came into a certain area as part of a uh, a murder investigation, I believe? Yeah, I think it's June of 2015 there was a murder and rally. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or maybe it was later. Um, but... Yeah, the cops basically went to Google and said, we want all of this information. And it wasn't... It was just an area because they didn't have, I guess, enough leads. Mm-hmm. So Now, they contend that they didn't even need a warrant to get this information, but uh, Google insisted initially... But so they just said, okay, well, we'll get a warrant. It was easier for them to do so. They did. Um, so they, at that point, my understanding is they got uh, data about a bunch of John Doe's. Yeah. And ostensibly, they would have needed to go get another warrant to unmask any of the John Doe's that they might right. be of interest. Yeah. So what do we think about that? Do we think this is that's fair? Well, the police are calling it a natural evolution, but I think seeing what we've seen and how um, sort of an anonymized data can be used um, and isn't often that anonymized, I'd be very wary of this kind of precedent. And mm-hmm. I think uh, assuredly a warrant is needed, and this definitely goes into just wiretapping entire buildings in the hopes that, you know, your criminal is in that building. I think we don't have good laws covering that situation either, unfortunately. But this is a fishing expedition, and this is dragnet surveillance. Mm -hmm. I don't think one could make a cohesive argument to the contrary. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I never pretend to be one, but... Well, to be devil's advocate, is it that much different than looking at uh, a store's security camera and looking at all the people that came in? Yes, that is a fixed location, Mm -hmm. and that is one, 
sort of one piece of information. Was that person in this store? You know, what did they sort of look like? This is asking Google for the information that they have on phones, and we give up a whole lot of information to our phones, willingly mm-hmm. or not willingly. Like, you know, where were you? How fast were you moving? What were you doing on your phone? You know, were you on a phone call, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And w- would this case kind of ruin my, uh, burst my bubble on a added step of security I take with my phone, which is that um, I use a prepaid service where I was able to just buy a SIM at a store and activate it without any kind of identification or authentication. And then I pay my bill in cash I or I buy refill cards hmm. rather in cash. The idea being that there, there's no one, uh, you know, if the phone is tracked, there's no uh, person uh, undeniably uh, associated with the phone. But that's relying on tracking the phone's communication with cell towers. Yeah. That's at like a layer. I don't know what OSI layer we'd be talking there. But this happened in the application layer, right? Yeah, this is... So this is any phone that was using Google Apps and sending uh, geolocation data to Google, And correct? on that, uh, well, yes, but, and there's an asterisk here, and the asterisk says, I don't actually know, but I know Google makes a lot of APIs and stuff that are used in other apps that aren't necessarily Google Apps, and I don't know what data would be collected from them, and I don't know what of that data would be shared. So it could be that this would encompass a lot more than just, you know, your Gmail, your Google Hangouts, and your Google Contacts, et cetera, et cetera, Mm -hmm. or your Android operating system. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, I mean, am I right in that they didn't – it was notable – that they they didn't want to go to AT and T or yeah. Verizon, and they didn't want to know which phones were in here. They went to Google, saying which smartphones sent geolocation yeah. information while they were in this area. Yeah, and that's however you want to look at it. That's that's kind of a interesting precedent that the police must have had a reason that they wanted to look at application layer rather than the the um the link layer i guess it would be right if <laughs> yeah i i mean if we're stretching that model yes uh. yeah <laughs> uh yeah and i don't know if that reason i'm not familiar with the situation uh, that well but i'm not aware if it was legal or you know, in that, like, their lawyer was like, hey, this is the best way to get the information you want, or it was, this is the information yeah. we want, and this is the best avenue to get. I wonder if the, the rationale was like, we, we have to approach four different cell companies, or we could approach Google, yeah. which, unless the person, I guess they're banking on the fact that unless the person has a flip phone, they're going to be caught in one of two operating systems and, and yeah. most likely using some permutation of Google Maps, but I'd really love to know precisely what their rationale was. Yeah. Uh, 
definitely before this becomes more widespread uh, practice, we should yeah know more about it. Yeah. So, uh, yes, uh, one other piece of good... I'm trying to count the good news on one hand. We're up to two? <laughs> three, maybe? Three? Let's say three. <laughs> I'm on the middle finger. <laughs> Uh, but the NYPD has uh, implemented some reforms. They, uh, uh, it's called the Right to Know Act. So in New York City, it requires their officers to inform subjects of proposed consent searches that uh, they have the right to decline consent and also requires officers to document objective proof of such consent, such as a body camera recording, uh, before proceeding with a search. This is your stop-and-frisk type situation. Yeah. That NYPD is so well known for. Yeah. The, they also, uh, the council in New York City named a, uh, a, a, a privacy officer. Uh, I, I don't know if they, na- they, they named the position. I don't know if they've named a, uh, an appointee yet. And uh, maybe we could get... Um, Theo Chino back on to talk more about this in a future episode, but I, I don't think it's clear they know what the privacy officer is going to be doing exactly, like what his responsibilities, his or her. So we'd, we'd be remiss if we didn't speak about this whole Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder... If it uh, deserves the word scandal or not, but it, it's got people pretty upset. Um, what well, the the cliff notes on that were that basically there were some Facebook apps, correct, that were uh, ostensibly uh, you know being offered as games or or something or a quiz or something uh really benign right but in the meantime it was gathering data for the trump campaign is that right well cambridge analytica ran some sort of like surveys and their app collected data but it also collected data on your friends and so through that so um, you you may have quickly signed through the terms of service saying like I allow my data to go to such and such and maybe you didn't read who it was and maybe if you did read it you didn't conceive of the scope of this organization that was getting your data but the other your friends didn't consent to anything so you became kind of a, a an unwitting rat in this whole thing yeah right and and then they were supposed to delete the data after some period, and they didn't. And then it comes out that, uh, you know, maybe they still haven't. Because, mm. of course, that data is incredibly valuable to advertisers. Yeah. Uh, as flawed as it may be. But, but this wasn't, this didn't come down to advertisers, no. right? This was a, a research firm being contracted by the Trump campaign during the 2016 election. Yeah. And I believe they have stronger than just contracted ties. Uh, Steve Bannon worked there, I believe. I see. Yeah, for some period. I don't know what his role was or anything. I just... So, yeah. Maybe... I don't know. What's one step down from... Expected scandal. Like, we should have seen this coming. We kind of did see this coming. Yeah. I mean, I've been 
careful about what I post on Facebook, I think. And then Facebook is the one losing face uh, <laughs> somehow rather than our president or rather than directly this this organization, this research organization. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. It's kind of like, am I... Am I so deep into this stuff that I don't understand why people would be like, I, I see this as like icing on the cake when, when, uh, you know, we have Facebook is like maybe sharing your, uh, like what Disney princess are you quiz results to somebody that you didn't expect them to. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, your local law enforcement has five years of where you've been in your car in a database, and the NSA, like, uh, monitors and processes every one of your emails and phone calls, and no one's, uh, you know, we've, we've still only had a, a tepid reaction to that. Maybe. The best we could hope for is that this is some sort of tipping point. I don't know. We'll yeah. see what uh, what comes of it. I but think. do you do you think? I don't know. It just it does smack of selective outrage to me because it's something something Russian trolls Trump. I I agree. It, you know there are other huge privacy concerns. Uh, I think that is the premise of this podcast. Uh, but. Yeah, I mean, it, it is very much selected outrage. I'll, I agree with you. Um, maybe it's that they need... Uh, Joe Schmo of the non-techno-elite populace needs some news bite that is easily digestible uh, that can be regurgitated on the evening news. You know, and I, I don't mean to belittle anybody, but, you know... Sometimes we talk about things that are a little technically heavy, and maybe that glosses over for some people. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe this will have the opposite effect and will be eye-opening. I well, guess we'll wait and see. I, I probably said too much on this, and uh, one of our cohort uh, and, and sometimes host, uh, Chuck Ritter, had this to say. I'd like to talk a little bit about Cambridge Analytica and the whole thing that has happened recently with them and Facebook. But let me start by telling you a story. If we go back a couple of months, there was a, an application that was making its rounds on Facebook, making its presence known. I saw you know, several of my friends using this particular application and posting their results. Essentially what the application was doing is ostensibly taking a picture of you and presenting you with another picture which was supposedly what you would look like as somebody of the opposite sex. Now, this in and of itself was kind of a cute thing. It was a neat little party trick. And I'll be honest with you, you know, uh, one particular friend of mine took and submitted his picture, and I don't know how this happened, but this really cute girl came out of the other side of it. My sister put her picture in, and out of the other side of it came somebody that looked like a slightly younger version of me, which is, of course, what you would expect. But uh, it's just that. It's a party trick. 
And it was one of these things that kind of got some popularity. So they put the message around to say, hey, you should try this. Chuck, give this a rip. See what happens. Okay. So I pulled up the site. And the first thing it said to me was, do you want to grant this application access to your Facebook profile? Well, I noped right the hell out of there. And that's what anybody should do any time that they encounter this particular question. Now, before you all go on about how this was the result of the recent Cambridge Analytica leak, I want to tell you again, this was a couple of months ago before that leak came to light. And uh, one of my friends that had sent this to me said to me, Chuck, you're being a little bit paranoid. I kind of understand where you're coming from, but really, it's just a simple little trick. That's it exactly. It is a simple little trick. So let's look at what happened in the case of Cambridge Analytica. An application of a similar nature was presented to the users. It was in the guise of a personality test. People love taking personality tests. I won't lie to you. I like taking personality tests. I love knowing what my personality type is. It's kind of cool to see what color I'm most similar to. It's kind of interesting to see which one of the doctors am I. I, I, I get it. I like it. I, I understand. The problem is that the particular personality test that Cambridge Analytica was putting out in the guise of an academic project was one of these that gained access to your user profile on Facebook. And in so doing, what it would do is it would get access to everything about you, not just the answers to the questions it asked you, but it would get all of your stats and it would find out who all your friends are and it would find out everything it could about them, which was way more than it should have had any right to access. Therein lies the problem. When you give access to an application on Facebook to your profile, you are giving that application access to every piece of information that Facebook has about you. And when you do this, it doesn't matter what the application says it's doing. Only the application's authors actually know what the application is doing under the hood. In short, you should never, ever give applications access to your profile. Does this mean you're not going to be able to participate in some of the party games? Yes, it does. However, you have to understand a couple of simple things. So let's bounce from talking about Cambridge Analytica specifically to talking about Facebook in general. The thing to understand about Facebook is this. It is a business. It does make money. And it makes its money by mining you. You as the user of Facebook, are not the customer. You are the product. You are being delivered to advertisers, surveyors, etc. Is this all bad? No. I'm a Facebook user, obviously. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had that neat story to tell you at the beginning of this rant. But the fact of the matter is that as a Facebook user, I have found that Facebook does get me a few useful things. It has put me back in touch with some people that I had fallen out of touch with. 
that's a wonderful, awesome thing. That is the most useful thing that Facebook does. But in doing this, Facebook surrounds you with images and messages from people whom you know, you love, and you trust. And in doing this, and they know they're doing this, in doing this, Facebook engenders in you a sense of trust that you really shouldn't have. So obviously, I'm not saying quit Facebook. I'm certainly not saying rage quit Facebook, like the delete Facebook movement that's been showing up lately. All I'm saying is that when you go to Facebook, keep your guard up because the messages that you are posting to Facebook are not private. You are not the customer, you are the product. And you need to go in there with your guard up. I'm Chuck Ritter and that's all I've got to say about that. Alright, I think I can get to my third finger in my hand and you know which one that is, but um, nonetheless we're, we're counting some items of good news amongst this morass of, uh, of, of horrible threats to our privacy each and every day. But coming from the laws of the land file, uh, we have some interesting legislation, both positive and negative, that have come out uh, in, uh, in the House. They passed uh, H.R. 4816 which is the Stop Civil Asset Forfeiture Funding for Marijuana Suppression Act of 2018. That's a little mouthful. Yeah. Yeah, well, they they come in, in gummies and other edibles now, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, as you know, we've talked about civil asset forfeiture plenty on this show. Uh, it's kind of... I'd say it's our biggest brick-and-mortar uh, issue, for restore the fourth yeah. uh it's it's probably the biggest uh threat to the fourth amendment that happens in meat space in modern times uh basically uh you know if you're not familiar it's where the government and law enforcement uh can't charge with you a cr with a crime so they charge a stack of money or a house or your car <laughs> with a crime there's literally dockets that say uh you know the u.s versus a pile of cash yeah <laughs> not i'm not being figurative so uh they'll use this method to you know they say it's to seize uh money from from large-scale drug runners and stuff but we've seen it uh happen with people at traffic stops who just happen to have large amounts of cash on them when they're just interacting with a police officer so yeah there was a story of a guy moving across the country so he closed his bank account and you know because his local credit union in new york doesn't have a branch in california yeah so he's driving across the country with a couple thousand in cash the cops stop him they're like oh you know what's going on do you have a bunch of cash in the car he's like well yeah i'm moving across country and they confiscate the cash and mm -hmm. I mean, maybe not in this particular instance, but there was a police station where they used uh, Fort Furcher to uh, buy themselves a new margarita machine. <laughs> I think John Oliver does a, yeah, uh, this, last week tonight, does a good episode on All it. this seized money just kind of goes into a pot. 
for whatever. So, but this law seems to be specific to marijuana uh, possession, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's attempting to curtail the widespread use of civil asset or forfeiture under the guise of marijuana. And they're like, so, because yeah. I mean, like there were, we saw cases where families lost their homes because their child was doing drug deals on the porch or something like that. Yeah, which absurd. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see. It's in committee for review, and we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, and I, I've noticed this is one area where, um, like uh, surveillance, it's. Kind of, kind of by uh, bilateral or, or uh, bipartisan. Um, yeah. a, a lot of traditionally conservative politicians um, are kind of raising their eyebrow at, at civil asset forfeiture because, you know, the right to life, liberty, and property, the pursuit of happiness. Um, yeah. uh, some good news from our uh, friends out west. Um, Basically, using the model ordinance that was crafted a few years ago by Restore the Fourth, uh, Berkeley, the city of Berkeley in uh, California, uh, passed a law requiring um, council approval. So basically, uh, the city council has to approve and any surveillance equipment that the police department purchases and deploys. And not only that, uh, it has to be reviewed uh, and audited, uh, I think, once a year or, or biannually. Uh, so, you know, we, we've seen this finally pass in uh, Berkeley and uh, Santa Clara County, amongst others, and hopefully we'll uh, be able to see similar ordinances pass in, in, in other cities throughout the U.S., because it's it's not just the NSA snooping around. It's your your, your local gumshoe police departments uh, using license plate readers, uh, cell phone stingrays, and other fun toys. Yeah. Um, but uh, in bad news, and you alluded to this during our, our interview, uh, the California Senate rejected a, a license plate Privacy Shield Bill, which I think was uh, uh, was pushed pretty hard by our friends at the EFF. Basically, um, we uh, we know that law enforcement are using these readers to uh, call all sorts of geolocation data on us in our vehicles, and then keeping them in, in databases. Uh, this was, you know, kind of just trying to chip away at that by merely saying that um, a vehicle owner should be able to uh, put a car cover on their vehicle that uh, also covers the license plate while it's parked. Said right. nothing about, you know, obscuring the license plate while the, motion, the vehicle's in motion, but... I think you're allowed to do it like for storage purposes and stuff, but like it's, I don't know. We need like a quick release car cover. You know, you could just. Whoosh, whoosh, this. I wave my arms around for all you fine folks who can't see what I'm doing. Yeah. 
So, but somehow the Senate of California felt you couldn't uh, cover up, you know, all portions of your vehicle. You have to leave the license plate open. Be interested to see how much money they got from the uh, California Fraternal Order Police. Mm. Oh, well. So, this episode, I think we'll end off with our Patriots and Pariahs segment. Do 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 do. So, as you know, every episode we pick one patriot and one pariah. The patriot being somebody who has done something notable to protect privacy rights, and then one pariah, someone who has done something to threaten our privacy rights. So, this episode's patriot or patriots plural uh, are a pair of reporters in Seattle. Portland. Portland. Oh, in Portland. With the uh, Wallamont Weekly, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm going to butcher their names, so uh, I apologize, but it's Chris Lidgate and Nick Budnick. Mm-hmm. Um, so, my understanding this surrounded uh, some case out there in Portland where they went through. A, an accused drug dealer's trash, right? Yeah. That's... Their physical trash out on the corner. They started digging through it uh, to get some evidence in his case to prosecute him. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. And the and then somebody questioned this, and the police chief said, well, no drug user should have the right to privacy of their trash. So these two journalists in... I think the finest tradition of democracy and journalism took it upon themselves and they picked three individuals, uh, the district attorney, uh, again, I'm going to butcher names, but Mike Sh- uh, Schnuck, Schnick, um, Shrunk, Shrunk, right. <laughs> sorry. Um, because I shrunk the evidence <laughs> because he had been a vocal defender of this, uh, stance that drug dealers don't have the right to privacy of their trash. Then they chose the police chief, and they chose the police commissioner. And uh, I'm not going to summarize the whole thing because it is a phenomenal read, and people should go read it because it's well-written, it's hilarious, and it is just really rewarding to read somebody, you know, these two people really taking a stand against this Mm. in what I think is a great tradition of sort of just... Speaking truth to power. Yeah. Um, So they found some things in their trash that maybe they wouldn't have expected to be revealed, right? Yeah. For instance, uh, um, one guy's uh, wife, uh, they were able to detect from, I'm guessing, discarded mail or something that uh, Mm -hmm. she was a member of Focus on the Family. Uh, Obviously not a crime, but um, I don't know. Uh, maybe in the city of Portland, it may as well be. Yeah. <laughs> um, basically, they found a focus on the family newsletter addressed to Mr. and Mrs. And then they asked the police chief if he was a member, and he said no. And they're like, well, is your wife? And he basically said, this interview is over. <laughs> um, they also found, like, a chewed cigar and uh, some intimate letter or note be- uh, that had been thrown out. But, yeah. 
but they're purporting, uh, did they specifically say drug dealers shouldn't expect yeah. to have their trash protected? Yeah. But I mean, what would what would make that specific for drug dealers? I mean, aren't they essentially saying that anyone's trash should be able to be gone through? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's uh, they're just sort of shrouding it in the guise of drug dealers. Yeah. Somehow. Um, which <clears throat> oftentimes we see these types of policies or privacy erosions done in the guise or with the full intentions of doing something good like mm -hmm. you know we it's the classic won't somebody think of the children mm -hmm. yeah so uh go read that article it's phenomenal uh at least i really enjoyed it we will link to it in the show notes so uh, uh well in the meantime i'd like to give a shout out to one other guy um Again, I'm probably going to butcher her name, but Ricardo um, Palacos, who's a rancher down in Texas, who it looks like the Border Patrol basically trespassed on his property and installed a camera, and he found it while walking around his property um, and took it down, and then the Texas Rangers and the Border Patrol called him and demanded it back, and he told them no, and countersued. And uh, our pariah this episode is uh, New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrio. Uh, and he, uh, I guess, pushed an initiative to require surveillance cameras outside of liquor stores and bars, right? Yeah. Uh, I think under the guise of something to do with immigration or drunken brawls or, you know, one of these situations, mm -hmm. but... So, I mean, as much as I think it's kind of common practice or a no-brainer to have a security camera if you own a liquor store, uh, that should be your your choice. Yeah, that's, that's your prerogative as a store owner, as a business person. Yeah. So now you're required to, and and are are the owners of these stores required to turn over the footage at on demand? Oh, I think. Well, my read was that they these were going to be cameras outside of the store, so it wasn't yeah. even something that like they could object to. Or, that or, it was like did they even have control of it? Is yeah, it, are, are, I think thought it was municipality. They, the municipality like provided the cameras or. Yeah, facilitated, and then they had Life. direct access to the feed. Yeah. Oh boy. I don't need some police officer judging what I drink. Mm. Uh, and there's uh, there's more. Um, not only was there this camera thing, he had entered into a partnership with Palantir, um, who uh -huh. does for predictive policing software, um, use via a nonprofit that he run or something. Um, without the consent or understanding of the city council or the public's knowledge. Um, yeah. And this came to light somewhat recently, and then it was announced that this partnership would be terminated. But um, So this is the uh, classic crony capitalism, basically. Yeah, and... It, a public-private partnership. 
And ironically, for a mayor who had espoused a lot of things about diversity and like race relations, uh, predictive policing tends to focus very heavily on places that are not white and are poor. So there's a always a racial bend because you know you train models on court cases and rich people can afford lawyers to get them off and so you are left with a self-selecting group of crimes or you know sometimes people are put into situations where they aren't aware of their rights and they agree to some plea bargain not understanding what they're agreeing to so even further selecting this so again as you were saying algorithms just uh, magnifying what's already bad about our society yeah all of our inequities magnified and automated. Yeah, that guy. So, to our patriots and pariahs, Chris Lidgate and Nick Budnick of the uh, Willamette, Willamette Weekly, uh, we salute you. Thank you. And Mayor... Mitch Landrio, redacted. All right, so that's going to about do it for episode 10 of Privacy Patriots. We hope you enjoyed. Uh, this has been the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thanks for listening. And we hope to have you join us for the next episode. Head over to www.privacypatriots.org where you can get further connected with us on Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. And keep watching The Watchers, and stay tuned as we give you the information you need to keep your information your own. <laughs>